The Kissel boys were born and raised in what we used to think of as the quintessential American family, something like you'd watch on a wholesome sitcom. They were as competitive as they were ambitious, and those qualities would take both brothers on their very own unique, successful journeys in life. But the younger of the two, Robert, he always seemed to have a bit of an edge over older brother Andrew. He was taller, more athletic, more popular, more social, friendlier. Things simply came easier to him. Robert was the brother who followed the rules. He maneuvered wisely, cautiously, thoughtfully. Andrew preferred the quick and easy, the fastest way to winning, even if it wasn't exactly the right way. It didn't matter because getting to the finish line first was the only thing that mattered. The irony is the manner in which both of these brothers would come to meet an equally tragic end. Three years and thousands of miles apart in ways and for reasons that to this day remain mysterious and nearly impossible to reconcile. This is a special vacation series presentation of California Dreaming, the tale of the Kissel family curse. Hello and welcome back to this multi-part series entitled The Tale of the Kissel Family Curse. It's a vacation series. The story takes place in the northeastern part of the United States and also in Hong Kong. This case was recommended by listener Nate B., who also sent me a book about this story entitled A Family Cursed by Kevin McMurray, which I've been referencing throughout. This is the fifth part of the series. Earlier today, I posted a thing in Facebook saying that this would be the last. But I lied. It was getting way too long, so I decided to go ahead and stop, record, and get back to it to the sixth and final part, which will be out hopefully very soon. So if you haven't listened to parts one through four yet, which are episodes 183, 84, 85, and 86, you might want to pause this, go back and binge those first, and then come back to this one. Or you might wait until you can binge the entire series all at once. The last episode was completely all about Nancy's 2005 murder trial in Hong Kong. I went through some of the witnesses and the evidence presented, including Nancy's testimony that Robert's killing was a justified act of self-defense. She portrayed him as an abusive, alcoholic, drug-addicted rapist who abused her throughout the duration of their marriage. It all culminated in one last fight where Robert allegedly came at her with a baseball bat at which point she had no choice but to defend her life. She grabbed a nearby heavy statue figurine and swung it five times at the allegedly bat-wielding Robert, striking him five times in the head. Each blow in and of itself would have been fatal. We're going to pick back up with the closing arguments, the verdict, and then we're going to circle back to what's been going on with the other Kissel brother, that has been a topic of discussion in the series, Andrew, and the financial troubles that he's found himself in. So let's get back to our story. In August of 2005, after three months of testimony in Nancy Kissel's murder trial, the prosecutor, Peter Chapman, and Nancy's lead defense attorney, Alexander King, prepared to summarize their sides of the case in their closing arguments. For the prosecution, it was simple. Nancy wanted out of the marriage but did not want to deal with the hassle of a divorce, a fight over assets, or a fight over custody of the children. She just wanted a clean break. She just wanted Robert dead. Of course, she had a new man that she had been carrying on an affair with, and she knew that her lover would be coming with nothing to his name. Dividing marital assets simply wasn't an option. Nancy had to have it all. Everything that they had, everything Robert had, and a life insurance policy to boot. The prosecutor implored the jury to listen to what the evidence was telling them, that this is a murder, plain and simple. There was no self-defense involved. Nancy wasn't defending herself. And Robert, he certainly wasn't defending himself either because the defendant rendered him incapacitated using drugs. It would have been virtually impossible for Nancy to have landed five clean blows to the head in the exact same spot, bringing that figurine statue crashing down onto Robert's skull, 
each blow on top of the other if Robert had been advancing towards her with a baseball bat. If this was a fight to the death, Nancy's strikes, if she had been able to even land any at all, would have landed in a much more chaotic manner. The bottom line, Nancy served Robert a drugged-up milkshake, she waited for him to pass out in their master bedroom, and when the domestic help left for the day, she picked up the statue figurine and struck Robert five times in the head, each blow in and of itself having been fatal. All the while, Robert lay perfectly still as his wife took his life. And it was in this act of violence that Nancy injured her hand. Nancy sat on the stand and portrayed Robert as a violent, physically and sexually abusive alcoholic, drug-addicted villain who tortured and tormented her and controlled her and humiliated her for years. Other than a couple of friends who said they saw a bruise here and there, which Nancy attributed to horseplay with her kids, nobody other than Nancy was able to step up to the stand and tell the court that they knew of any abuse that they saw some abuse, or that Nancy told them of abuse. Not one friend, not one co-worker, no neighbors, no school teachers, no doctors, no nurses, no therapists, nobody. Not even those closest to her. Not her best friend, not her parents, not her sister, nobody. Just Nancy. Everyone who came to court to speak to Robert as a person described him as a caring, loving, and devoted husband and father, and not a single person who knew him socially or in the work environment had a negative thing to say about him. Prosecutor Chapman traced the beginning of the end to a little less than a year before Nancy murdered Robert. The first time anyone actually noticed that the dynamic between Nancy and Robert had changed, and it wasn't for the better. It was during a holiday ski vacation in 2002. The first to take notice that Nancy was different was her sister-in-law, Robert's sister, Jane. She noted that Nancy paid absolutely no attention to Robert. She was quiet. She kept to herself. She hardly spoke to him. She was hardly around. And then to everyone's surprise, she left the vacation days earlier than planned and went all the way back to Hong Kong by herself. That was during Christmas of 2002, and by the beginning of 2003, Robert was picking up on the red flags, too. He began wondering if Nancy was seeing someone else, and within a month's time, he had installed that software onto Nancy's computer so he could spy on her internet activity, which is when he discovered the ongoing communications between his wife and the cable guy. Robert's suspicions were heightened when Nancy left Hong Kong with the kids during the SARS outbreak and went to ride out the epidemic in Vermont, at which point he hired private investigator Frank Shea to look into the matter. During the months of June and July, Frank sent an investigator to surveil the Vermont home, and during each of the four times that the investigator chose to stake out the house, he was able to see Nancy's lover come and go. He chose two random days in June and two random days in July, and each time, the guy showed up. By late summer, Robert was looking into filing for divorce, something that Nancy didn't want. She knew the adultery would cost her dearly, and she knew that this would be a deeply acrimonious divorce, which could take a long time to settle. Not wanting to give Robert any time to make changes to his estate, his beneficiaries, his will, his life insurance, Nancy knew she needed to act fast, especially since the man she was in love with had nothing to his name. On August 30th, 2003, that is when the first searches Nancy made on her computer involving terminology such as overdose, drugs, and related keywords. And Robert was able to see this activity because of that software that he had installed. He related to both Frank and his wife's BFF, Bryna, that he suspected that Nancy was slipping him something to drug him or to poison him. It was presented in court that over the course of a week leading up to Robert's murder, Nancy had gone on a doctor shopping spree and obtained each of the drugs 
that was ultimately identified in Robert's stomach contents during the autopsy. And they were drugs that should not have been prescribed to one person at one time. So this kind of had me wondering, did Nancy want to kill Robert by way of a drug overdose? It's hard to say for sure, but that may very well have been plan A. But when Robert didn't die, as it is suspected that he had built up a tolerance, Nancy went on with plan B, which was bludgeoning Robert to death. I said previously that the manner in which Nancy attempted to cover up and dispose of Robert's body did not seem like it was born of a well-thought-out plan at all, which had me questioning for a minute as to whether or not the killing was actually planned. Maybe there was a fight that went way out of hand, and this very, very poor attempt at hiding what she had done was the result of that lack of any sort of planning. It seems kind of like it's plausible, right? We know that Nancy lived in an apartment situation. We know that it is a high-rise. So we know that getting rid of the body by no means is going to be an easy task. And we know this due to our vast interest in crime and criminal activity. The links that some people have gone to in order to hide and cover up a murder. And it isn't pretty. And neither is what Nancy did to Robert. But when you pull back and look at the predicament Nancy got herself into once she killed Robert, it had me thinking for a while. What the heck was she going to do? In cases like this, size matters. A lot of times, most of the time, victims of violent crimes are women. And sometimes they're small and they're petite. We've seen killers hide tiny victims in suitcases. Obviously, smaller bodies are going to be easier to conceal and easier to transport. We've seen killers dismember their victims in order to make hiding, transporting, and disposing of easier too. If the killer is a man, he might be big and he might be strong, but even if he isn't, he could be running on adrenaline and oftentimes they'll ask a close family member or a trusted friend for help. It really is crazy the lengths that some killers have gone to in order to cover their tracks. But then we have Nancy Kissel. A couple weeks back, I posted a picture of Nancy and Robert in a picture flanking former President George H.W. Bush. It's an attempt to try and put into perspective what we're looking at here when we are trying to picture Nancy and Robert, in an alleged fight that ends in Robert's death. I posted that H.W. Bush was about 6 foot 2 or 1.88 meters, that's 188 centimeters tall. And I asked for estimates from you guys as to how tall Robert and Nancy appear to be, with the possibility of Nancy having heels on in this particular photo. So... We all came to the conclusion that Robert might be somewhere between 5'10 to 6 feet tall, which is approximately 1.77 meters or 177 centimeters to 1.82 meters or 182 centimeters tall. Nancy appears to be anywhere from 5'2 to 5'6 or 1.5 meters or 152 centimeters tall to 1.6 meters or 167 centimeters tall. And in the picture, we can clearly see that Nancy is not only petite. She also looks pretty darn happy, too, didn't she? <laughs> I mean, talk about a glowing smile. Clearly, Robert has outsized Nancy by a lot. And it isn't going to be easy for her to get rid of his dead body. She's living in a 20-story apartment, and from at least one article that I found, which was a Chinese publication that only let me read a portion of it in the Google results because it said something about the 20th floor apartment suddenly becoming available. So honestly, it wouldn't have mattered if Nancy was on the third floor or the 20th floor. Getting Robert out of the building was something I believe she was incapable of doing on her own. So I have to ask, why in the world would she beat him to death 
with no plan on getting his soon-to-be decomposing corpse out of there. Did this mean that this manner of killing Robert was unplanned? Not necessarily. The more I thought about it, the more I began to think that I believe the original plan was for Robert to die of a drug overdose, for Nancy to discover his dead body, for her to call 911, and by the way, in Hong Kong, the emergency number is 999, so to call 999, have Robert taken from the home by ambulance, and for him to be declared dead at the hospital, so there would be nothing in the apartment to clean up. Perhaps after giving Andrew Tanzer that drugged-up milkshake was a way of shifting suspicions away from herself, all a part of her plan A, nobody has ever really been able to explain why she offered the drugs to him as well, but that was one possibility. But Robert didn't die, and perhaps Nancy panicked. She had gone this far, She did not want to go another day married to Robert. She needed to move on with Mike Del Priore. So before too much time passed, before Robert would have a chance to come to, she went ahead and bludgeoned him. And she had plenty of time to come up with a cover story. This was a fight for her life. He was abusive. He raped her. He attacked her with a bat and she defended herself because she knew she was going to have to answer to this because there was no way she was going to be able to get rid of Robert's body on her own. It took four maintenance men and two dollies to get him down into the storage room. And by then, the smell of decomposition was permeating through the rolled up rug. And it really strikes me as odd that nobody thought anything of it beyond it just smelling really bad. The housekeepers, the maintenance staff, even Nancy's own kid was like, damn, what's that smell? All of this is to say that for a minute, I thought perhaps this was a case of second-degree murder. But once I came to the point where I thought perhaps her plan was for Robert to die of a drug overdose and for him to be rushed to the hospital, that I more strongly believe now that it was indeed a first-degree premeditated murder, which is what Prosecutor Chapman is hoping that the jury will find as well. He reminded the jury that on November 2nd, 2003, after their company had left, the Tanzers, the drugs that Nancy had served up began taking their effect on Robert. There was no knockdown, dragout fight. There was no attempt on Robert's part to force himself on Nancy and her denying him sex. Robert never wielded a baseball bat. A life and death struggle did not ensue. Robert simply laid down and passed out from the drugs that he was given and Nancy Kissel quietly waited for him to die. But he didn't, so she made him dead. There were no reports of any noises coming from the Kissel apartment. There was no yelling, no screaming, no fighting, and neither Robert or Nancy had any kind of defensive wounds on their body. That's because Nancy was never attacked, and Robert was unconscious when he was attacked. And then Nancy would end up telling two very different versions of what happened the evening that she killed Robert. She told her story to a doctor who she visited two days after his death. And then she told a very different version of what happened when she got up in front of the court and testified. It's because her initial story had way too many holes in it, way too many discrepancies, and way too many things that didn't make any sense. So with a year and a half to think about it, Nancy would eventually tell the jury a story that was much more in line with what the evidence in the case had shown. Then, in the days following, Nancy did all of the things that she needed to do, including having her housekeeper do some of them as well. She did all the shopping for things that she needed to replace in order to carry out the cover-up of Robert's murder, a consciousness of guilt. But, as Nancy had stated, if they had a life-and-death struggle... If she fended off a bat attack and managed to get the upper hand and took Robert down with that figurine, the next thing that she could have done and should have done was called 999. But she never did that. It wasn't until the police were standing in her living room where she was backed into the corner as they asked her, where's your storage unit? Nancy had no place else to go 
no place else to run, and it was all over. So the jury had the weekend to chew on all of that before the defense attorney, Alexander King, would have his chance to explain to the jury why his client was justified in killing her husband and therefore is not guilty of murder. He told them that all they needed to do was look at the evidence and employ their common sense and they would be able to see the truth. And just as Alexander King was about to launch into his closing arguments, the Kissel patriarch, William Kissel, seated in the gallery, could take it no more. He rose from his seat and left the courtroom, unwilling to hear his son being dragged through the mud anymore. This wasn't a case of Nancy springing her murderous plot on an unsuspecting Robert Kissel. This had nothing to do with anything the prosecutor said were his client's motives, which were lust and sex and money. This killing was all about Robert that he wanted a divorce, but it was something that he had wanted for a while, but he never had a reason for it in the past, not until Mike Del Priore came into the picture. Robert knew that if Nancy filed for divorce from him and told of all the physical and sexual abuse that he had subjected her to over the years, that the divorce would cost him dearly when it came to both assets and custody of the children. Those types of accusations would not only cost him everything he had in his personal life, but it would also severely impact his professional life as well. Accusations of spousal abuse would ruin him. He had become a leading figure in the world of finance in Hong Kong, and he stood to lose it all if Nancy were to file for divorce and all of his dirty laundry became public knowledge. On top of everything else, Robert had to be in control of everything. So the evening of their final fight, he told Nancy that he was going to divorce her and he was going to take everything, including the children. And then he played his best hand, the affair that she had been having with Mike Del Priore. With all the evidence and information that he had on that, he was going to take her to the cleaners in divorce court. And from there, the argument escalated as Nancy was determined to fight for her children. She absolutely could not and would not allow them to be in the primary custody of this abuser. The fight continued to escalate. It turned physical. Robert came at her with a bat, and she grabbed the first thing that she could find to defend her life. And with it, she killed him. Yes, she did that. She managed to strike Robert in the head five times, killing him, in order to stop him, who was in a full-blown blind rage, a maniac coming at her armed with a baseball bat. She had no choice. Alexander King told the jury again to think about it and to use their common sense when taking all of this in. For instance, the item with which Nancy struck Robert with, a heavy figurine, That figurine set was an exquisite family heirloom passed down for generations. If this fight were planned out, would Nancy have chosen an item that was so important, so valuable, that meant so much to the family? There is no way that this is the item that Nancy would have chosen to kill with if she had planned this event out. She chose it out of fear and desperation, whereas if she had time for deliberation, she most certainly would not have chosen a priceless heirloom. (sighs) To me, I think that just sounds silly. I don't think Nancy gave a shit about anything but herself. She was expecting Robert to die of an overdose. No, her bludgeoning Robert wasn't the plan. She wasn't in a panic because she was being attacked. She was in a panic because her plan wasn't working. However, King did bring up the point that I had mentioned before in regards to this not being very well planned out, and this would be the manner in which Nancy disposed of Robert's body. I already explained my stance on how it wasn't the initial plan, but Nancy had to shift gears because Robert wasn't succumbing to the drug overdose. She was out of options. Her attorney attributed the way she handled hiding Robert's body to being a complete mental breakdown. While I admit he makes a good point, 
I still say that there is plenty of evidence that it could have been a complete act of desperation. She had already gone too far. She had already planned for Robert to be dead that night. The way she wanted him to die failed, and going back for her was not an option. Nancy's attorney also used Robert's use of computer spyware against him and his character as well. That is something a complete control freak would do, and it is a testament to the things Nancy was subjected to while living under Robert's rule. When Robert thought his marriage was in trouble, instead of talking to his wife, he went behind her back and put the software on her computer so he could watch her every move without her knowing. Okay, dreamers, I'm kind of on the fence about that one with the whole spyware thing, too. I'm not liking it, but I don't know. I wouldn't like it if that was done to me. Maybe he just really needed the confirmation and the proof in order to get ready for the divorce, you know, so that helps to have hard evidence. He seemed really, really concerned about losing the kids, and I'm sure that that was one of his biggest motivations. And I suppose the more dirt he could dig up on Nancy, the better a case he could build for himself. Alexander King also told the jury that they could not rely on the police investigation into the case while rendering their decision because they had not investigated the case thoroughly enough. They went in there first, talking to Nancy as if they were looking for a missing person, and then they found that Robert was not missing, that he was dead, and they just assumed that she murdered him and considered the case basically solved. I disagree with the sweeping generalization of the investigation because I did go over a lot of the evidence that was revealed, the autopsy, the toxicology, the forensics, the computer analysis. No investigation is perfect. But whatever missteps the defense believe the police made early on in this case, since they didn't know exactly what they were walking into when they showed up at Nancy's apartment, for me, it doesn't really have that much of an impact on the overall case itself. Because it doesn't change the fact that Robert was bashed upside the head with five quick, clean blows delivered by Nancy. The jury was handed the case. They were told that if they were to find Nancy guilty of murder, they had to all be in agreement, of course, and that she did deliver those five blows to Robert's head. And the judge reminded the jury that each of those five blows were fatal, broken pieces of his skull had pierced into his brain, causing a massive spillage of brain matter and ultimately his death. They were told that they could consider the charge of manslaughter by way of being provoked, that he did something to Nancy that provoked her to kill him. The judge also told the jury that while the prosecution did not have to prove any motive for Nancy to have wanted to kill Robert, that they could accept the explanation they were provided in order for them to make sense of why all this happened. In addition, if they find that this was an act of self-defense, if they find that to be the case, then that is permitted by law. Nancy Kissel was within her legal rights to defend her life if they find that to be the case. But if they did find that Robert Kissel did nothing to provoke or bring about any reason for this attack to occur, then they must find Nancy guilty of murder. He reminded them to consider the credibility of the witnesses. And as an example, he pointed out that Nancy's father's testimony was very different than what he had told police the day that the murder was discovered. And they could consider his credibility to be unreliable because of his conflicting statements. And they could find that to be the case with any of the witnesses that they heard from. The prosecutor's closing arguments came on Friday, December 26, 2005. The defense's closing began on Monday the 29th and carried over into Tuesday the 30th. The judge's summation and instructions began on Tuesday and finished up on Wednesday, August 31st. The jury was given the case to deliberate that day at 12.30, and after seven hours, they reached their verdict, which was delivered the next day, Thursday, September 1st, 2005. A stoic Nancy Kissel sat there as the jury foreman announced that they found her guilty of murder. She was sentenced on the spot to life in prison, 
which was the mandatory sentencing. And a fun fact, once a person has served on a jury like this in Hong Kong, they are excused from jury duty for the next 15 years. I can't remember what it was in California or if it varies from state to state, but I'm fairly certain that you're not off the hook for 15 years once you serve. So from here, I'm going to read an excerpt directly from Kevin McMurray's book, A Family Cursed. It reads, Two stunning revelations were made upon the trial's conclusion that could not be divulged while it was in progress for fear of prejudicing the outcome. One was the revocation of Nancy Kissel's bail back on August 11, 2005, after she had finished testifying. No reason was given, but it was assumed that it was done because that was the day she finally admitted to killing her husband on the stand. The Hong Kong authorities did not want an admitted killer freely walking the streets of their city. The issue of entering the baseball bat into evidence by the defense was the other. It was midway through the prosecution's case when it was revealed that the bat had been found and removed from the Kissel apartment by the defense team and kept in their offices without notifying the police or the prosecutor's office. Apparently, Judge Lin, who was presiding over the case, was not too happy about the surprise submission of the evidence in the midst of an ongoing trial. He announced that he had ordered the trial transcripts that pertain to the mystery bat to be sent to the director of public prosecutions for directions as he sees fit. Without the jury's knowledge, the judge had noted his astonishment that the defense had not notified the court until this stage of the case, given the significance of the baseball bat. This is another interesting excerpt from McMurray's book that I wanted to share directly with you. And he wrote, According to trial watchers, Nancy Kissel had gone to great lengths to appear to be traumatized and a battered wife that she claimed that she was. Seated in court, her shoulders were always slumped forward with her eyes cast downward. At opportune times, she would quietly weep or dab her eyes with a tissue and avoid making eye contact with anybody. According to one witness, during a break in the trial one day, Nancy Kissel let her guard down. Outside the courtroom, there were two glassed-in conference rooms that flanked each side of the entrance doors. The room to the left was used by the prosecution team and police, and the one to the right by the defense team. The large glass partitions were tinted to afford some privacy to the occupants. If the glaring overhead lights inside the room were off, you can see... But this particular time, they were on. Nancy, as per her usual routine, sullenly walked into the room in a dejected slouch. Once the door was shut, out of the public view, or so she thought, she straightened up and began aggressively and accusedly pointing her finger at her defense team. She appeared to be haranguing them over something that happened in court, Either it was pointed out that the lights were on and she could be seen or she realized it herself. That's when she abruptly ended the scene and sat down in one of the chairs and hunched forward in her familiar slouch. So dreamers, I questioned what Nancy's end game was when it came to Robert's body, but there was some information that came out later on that didn't make it into the court, which I found quite interesting. So three days after Robert was killed, the same day that she had Robert's body moved down into the basement, Nancy called a company called Lynx Relocations. This is a moving company. Nancy asked about getting an estimate on how much it would be to pack up everything she had in her apartment and in her storage and having it shipped from Hong Kong to Vermont. But we know that that never came to fruition because Robert's body was discovered the next night, and in short order, Nancy was taken into custody and charged with murder. However, after Nancy was under arrest, a comprehensive search of her apartment was conducted, at which point investigators discovered an industrial-grade butcher saw and a pair of industrial-grade cutters hidden in a laundry hamper in her youngest son's bedroom. When piecing these two bits of information together, the moving company and the butcher equipment, Investigators surmised that it was quite possible that Nancy was planning to cut Robert up and ship his disarticulated pieces home to Vermont where she could deal with it at a later time. In addition to this, Nancy had purchased several heavy-duty shipping containers the day before her arrest as well. 
As for Mike Del Priore, there has been no evidence that ever surfaced that he had anything directly to do with the planning of Robert's murder. Even though it could be proven that Nancy spoke to Mike on the phone right before and right after the murder. The only thing he is suspected of doing is perhaps giving Nancy advice on what to wrap Robert's body inside of inside the rug to prevent his bodily fluids from leaking out of the thing. Remember, I mentioned that Robert was placed inside a sleeping bag. Well, Nancy specifically chose a polypropylene lined sleeping bag meant to keep in body heat while camping out in cold weather. It was a thing that would be able to keep Robert's bodily fluids from seeping into the rug. So there you go. Now we know that these types of sleeping bags are useful in wrapping up a dead body, apparently. I did not know that. I actually had no idea. I'm not much of a camper. I'm a hoteler. And people wonder, is this a thing that Nancy would have known? Camping wasn't her thing either. Never did it. They had vacation homes. Not exactly roughing it. But is it something that Mike Del Priore could have told her? He has been suspected of suggesting that to Nancy, which would mean he had a role in the planning of all this, but he would never be charged. His relationship with his brother Lance was ruined forever. It wasn't just over this, but it was over everything Mike had done wrong to him, which included stealing from the company after Lance had been more than accommodating and generous. At the end of the day, though, Lance is convinced that if all of this had happened in the United States, that Mike Del Priore would have gone down with Nancy as an accomplice to the whole thing. If not that, then Mike would have probably carried out the crime himself. I'm fairly certain that Nancy would have absolutely been able to manipulate him into doing it. So after her conviction, Nancy was sent to the Thai Lam Institute for Women. At the time, she was one of 81 inmates from other nations, and their three children, who have now lost both of their parents, were sent to live with their aunt and uncle, Andrew and Haley Kissel. All right, so now it's time to get back to the other brother, Andrew Kissel, and his world of problems. If you remember when we left off with him, he was busted for skimming money from the apartment co-op that he was a part of when he served as their treasurer on the board of directors to the tune of about more than $4 million. He had paid back $1 million, but the board wanted it all back. And we left off with everyone figuring out how to best go about dealing with Andrew and getting the money back from him at the same time, because getting him in legal trouble, sending him to jail would pretty much guarantee that they would never see a penny of what he took. At this point in our story, another Nancy is going to be introduced into this, but her name is Nancy Walkley. So in order to ease the confusion, I will refer to her either by her first and last name or just by her last name. So Nancy Walkley is a title attorney. What the heck is a title attorney? Well, according to careerplanner.com, a title attorney examines abstracts of covering purchases and sale of land and oil, gas, and mineral rights. They draft deeds and affidavits and presents other evidence to meet legal requirements of documents, examines instruments and opinions prepared by other attorneys, and advises officials of organizations as to legal requirements in connection with titles, searches and examines public records and writes opinions on titles and prepares cases for trial and tries to assist in trial lawsuits involve titles to land and gas and oil and mineral rights. Did that clear that up for you? Yeah, me neither. I don't know what it is still, but oh well. Nancy Walkley does these things. That's her job. And ultimately, she is going to be the one that's going to topple Andrew Kissel's house of cards. In most states, you do not have to be an attorney to be a title agent. But in Connecticut, you do. Nancy Walkley lived in Connecticut and tried as hard as she could to work as close to home as possible in order to avoid commuting to New York City. She had a number of bank and real estate clients before getting into work for title companies. 
Previously, she had become an attorney with Chase Bank. Then she managed a title company for several years in Stamford, Connecticut. Then she was in charge of a Fidelity title company, which was also in Connecticut. And this is where she came to know Andrew. Nancy Walkley had a lot of connections in the industry, pretty much all over the state of Connecticut. And they would bring clients to her in order to handle the complicated business of title insurance. Because it is so complicated and you really need to know and trust who you work with, Nancy Walkley had a pretty close, tight-knit network of colleagues with strong business relationships with all of them. Well, it just so happened that one of Nancy Walkley's agents had been introduced to Andrew. And Andrew had made a really great first impression, which he was good at, and he got a glowing recommendation from a mutual business associate. Nancy Walkley was told that Andrew was a pretty solid guy, and it would be a good move to give Andrew a loan to invest in a property in Greenwich where a house once stood but had been raised and was ready for something brand new to be built on it, which for the area was a great investment. Nancy Walkley looked up the property. It all seemed to check out. Nothing was owed on it. And this was going to be a pretty easy transaction for her. So she thought. Now, dreamers, because I want to be clear on what is going on here, I'm going to go ahead and directly quote from the book, The Family Cursed, as to what happened next, because it's going to be really difficult for me to put it into my own words and for it to all continue to make sense. So I'm just going to tell you what it says happened, and what Andrew Kissel was doing. It reads, quote, Andrew Kissel went into Manhattan to close the deal instead of staying in Greenwich. Andrew overnighted the signed documents to the agent in Greenwich. This particular agent had an arrangement where instead of him recording them in the town of Greenwich's land office, Nancy Walkley's office did it themselves. A title searcher for Walkley ran the search, dated from a week before the search was ordered, and then was to officially record the documents. According to Nancy Walkley, most agents will run down the title the day before the closing, assuming the usual, that nothing has been recorded in the intervening days between title order and title search. Others were more anal about it, Nancy said, including herself and her employees. The recorder found an intervening mortgage of $1 million recorded days before on the exact same property. He double-checked his property information and found it to be correct. The new mortgage lien was also recorded properly. He called Nancy Walkley into her office to ask what he should do next. She told him to sit on it, and she made a call of her own to Andrew's attorney. So what I'm gathering here is that when she first looked up the property that Andrew wanted a loan on, it was clear. But a couple days later, it wasn't. So that's something fishy is what I'm gathering here. And like I said, dreamers, I'm going to continue to give you much of the information that the book has to say on this case at this point, because I'm not, I want to make sure I get it clear the things that Andrew was doing here. I can tell it's shady, but when it comes to real estate, and I certainly don't have to remind you that I'm kind of a dum-dum, and I wouldn't really know how to relay it to you and for it to continue to make sense. I did ask around Facebook to see if anyone could help me. If not... Just pay attention closely and we'll try to understand what Andrew is doing here. So Nancy Walkley called Andrew's attorney. And when she told him about this, he said that he didn't know anything about it. In the book, it reads, quote, Her next question was whether the money had gone out for the new mortgage. The lawyer replied that the bank had wired the $1 million to Andrew's private account. Walkley had the attorney call Mr. Kissel and find out what was going on and then dialed her waiting title recorder at the Greenwich office, told him to go ahead and record the deed, but subject it to the found mortgage as Fidelity Title was committed to ensure the bank's title on the property that they already had funded. Andrew was supposedly out of the country and was exchanging emails with his lawyer via his BlackBerry. Andrew claimed it was a mistake and the newly found mortgage was attached to the wrong property. Andrew's lawyer thought it sounded reasonable because his client owned a number of properties in Greenwich and the bank in question had funded many of them. The lawyer ended the call by saying he would get the first mortgage off of it. 
This was a Friday, and Nancy Walkley did not get much sleep over that weekend. On Monday, Andrew's lawyer called Nancy Walkley and told her that he had gotten a release from the bank that had the first mortgage. Walkley requested that he fax it over to her before he recorded it himself, as a lawyer was right there in Greenwich. When she got her hands on the fax, she thought it looked a little strange. She noticed it was from a New York bank, but it had been witnessed and notarized in Connecticut. Walkley thought that since Mr. Kissel was such a big hitter, his banker must have lived in Connecticut too. He must have gotten the release taken care of in his home state over the weekend. Since her client's bank was now the first mortgage holder, it was a done deal as far as she was concerned. Just two weeks later, another loan from the same lawyer came across her desk with Andrew Kessel's name on it. It was an apartment building in Woodbury, Connecticut, about 65 miles. That's about 104 kilometers northeast of Greenwich. Walkley used a different title searcher and dispatched him to Woodbury. He found a large mortgage on the property attached to the deed. Walkley immediately called the lawyer and informed him of the discovery. The lawyer called back minutes later and told her that Andrew had said that the mortgage had been released. Perplexed, Walkley sent the searcher back into the land office the next day. The searcher didn't bother to call his boss, faxing instead a revised title search with the bank release on the first mortgage. So Walkley studied it closely. And dreamers, just to be clear, a mortgage release is when the owner of a property voluntarily transfers the ownership of that property to the owner of the mortgage in exchange for a release from the mortgage loan and any more payments to be made on it. So the book continues, quote, She remembers thinking how the form in her hand did not look like a real bank release. Most banks use pre-printed forms with fancy script. This one looked like it had been typed up on a computer word processing program and printed at home. But Walkley knew that didn't necessarily mean anything since she was seeing more and more of this type of quality of document from other banks, especially when it came to commercial properties. The thing she found curious was that there were no other mortgages on the property, a multi-unit apartment building, because that was very unusual. Commercial property owners rarely leave a piece of property free and clear. They take out other loans against the property in order to fund other ventures. The commercial property funds were to flow through her employer, which is Fidelity Title, with a $7 million being wired in from a bank in California. Nancy Walkley had to pay for a laundry list of services that was to be performed in the process of obtaining the title. The balance was to be wired from Fidelity to Andrew's personal account in Manhattan. Walkley told the lawyer that Andrew would not get a dime until she was satisfied that the new mortgage documents were of record and were in first position on the property deed. Walkley was still remembering the funny business over the property in Greenwich two weeks before. Andrew overnighted the original signed documents to Walkley. She placed them in the hands of a lawyer colleague at the end of the working day with instructions to drive up to Woodbury Land Office first thing the next morning. In Woodbury, the lawyer ran the title search from the first day it was ordered, pulled the documents, and literally waited there with cell phone in hand for word from Walkley that the wired money from California had reached the Fidelity account. Once Walkley confirmed the wire delivery, she told the lawyer on the cell to record the mortgage. All it would take then was a touch of a button on her computer to transfer the $6 million plus into Andrew's personal account. But she hesitated, remembering that just to be extra safe, she should have a disbursement authorization from Andrew Kissel. The disbursement authorization would grant Walkley the right to pay for all the services rendered in securing the title. Andrew's attorney said he would fax it over, but Walkley had left her office for the day. The next morning, Walkley studied the fax. It was a power of attorney authorization, 
giving Andrew's lawyer permission to disperse the funds. Since the lawyer was her agent in effect, it gave Walkley power of disbursement. Walkley remembers thinking that maybe she was being paranoid, but something struck her as strange. Andrew signed his name with a large sweeping A that was quite distinctive. In the front of her file was the release from the prior bank signed by the bank officer whose first name was Arthur. Comparing his signature to Andrew's, she noticed the oversized sweeping A's were identical. Walkley's caution antenna went up. She didn't like how all of these dealings with the Greenwich real estate entrepreneur, meaning Andrew, were adding up. Walkley called her title searcher in Woodbury and asked her to look back over the history of the property and see if she could find anything fishy. The title searcher called back to report that there had been three mortgages on the property. She sensed her boss's nervousness and suggested that Walkley call the banks and get verbal confirmations on the three mortgage releases. Walkley had the loan numbers of the mortgages and Andrew's social security number, and with the help of the internet, she found after checking with the bank about the status of the most recent bank loan that there was still a $5.3 million balance. After thanking the bank officer, she hung up and immediately phoned the agent handling Andrew's loan and told him the mortgage she had the release on was still alive. Walkley told him all bets were off and were not closing. Andrew emailed Walkley to say that the loan had been, according to his memory, paid off by his business partner. Walkley responded that she did not care for his excuses and the fact remained that the loan had not been paid off according to her research. What followed next was a frenzied exchange of emails between Walkley, the agent, and Andrew, who was again supposedly out of the country communicating via BlackBerry. Finally, Andrew told the agent to just pay off the loan with the ample funds in the closing account. Walkley emailed back that she would not do it. Since it was 8 a.m., Walkley had to wait several hours until the banks in California opened for business to notify them of the problem loan. In the meantime, she instructed her title searcher in Woodbury to make copies of every loan and release on the Greenwich mortgage she had worked a few weeks prior and drive them back to Greenwich with them. There were seven loan releases. Walkley and her colleague called each bank to inquire about the status of the loans. To Walkley's dismay, every single mortgage loan was still alive. According to Walkley, the dollar amounts were in the multi-multi-millions of dollars and way more than the market value of the property. So what I am gathering here is that Andrew is taking out several mortgages on the same property from different banks and Andrew was giving Walkley fake mortgage release papers, essentially trying to tell her that the property had no active mortgages on it so her company would close on a new mortgage. Andrew made up these fake mortgage releases then when a search is made for any outstanding loans, it would appear as though there aren't any, then Andrew can go ahead and take out another loan and have all that money wired to him. So we kind of get what's going on here, right? Right. The book continued, quote, The California bank finally returned Walkley's call and insisted that they wanted to see the Kissel loan. Flabbergasted. That's a funny word. I think it's the first time I've ever used it in 188 episodes here. Flabbergasted. Walkley said, what are you talking about? You are not the first mortgage. The bank said that there must be some kind of mistake and to just go ahead and close the deal. Walkley suspected someone at the bank was just thinking about their own commission. Walkley refused to close on the loan and the California bank was not very happy with her. Walkley reconfirmed with the banks that their loans on the Greenwich property were still alive. She faxed each bank a copy of the mortgage releases, writing that she believed the loans were still alive, but these releases had not been recorded at the land office. Walkley wanted confirmation about what she already knew, that those releases were fake. From Andrew's website, Walkley got a list of LLCs that he did business under the names of, and notified every agent in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, of a blacklisting. There was one other suspicious detail in the loan documents that got Walkley's attention. 
All the releases were notarized by one notary public. What are the chances, Walkley thought, of all seven banks using the same notary? As it would turn out, the notary public was a former employee of Andrew's property investment company who had inadvertently left her notary stamp behind when she left the job. Other things about Andrew's methods of operations rankled Walkley. She found that he used different lawyers. From her vast experience, Walkley knew that real estate investors and developers usually only used one attorney for all their legal work. Andrew was also always out of town for the closings and relied on emails and faxes for communicating with the principals in each deal. Perhaps Andrew did not want people to see him actually sign the documents. The puzzle was coming together for Walkley. Within days, one of the swindled banks notified the FBI of Andrew's real estate fraud. Andrew Kessel's empire was about to collapse. In retrospect, according to Walkley, the public record system that we all rely on presumes the honesty and integrity of the system itself and the people filing in it. And that is what Andrew relied on and abused. Explaining her statement, Walkley said that the standard in the industry was you order a title search and rely on what the search shows. And the search generally only shows open financing. If a release was filed, the financing that release pertains to would not show up. Any prospective buyer or lender is then led to believe that the property is free and clear of liens. So it was apparently pretty easy to doctor up fake mortgage releases, obviously because Andrew was doing it and getting away with it for some time. He would take out a mortgage on a property, submit a fake mortgage release, then he went in for another loan with a different bank, and when they searched for any outstanding loans, it would appear to be clean. And then he'd get issued another loan and then repeat. It was just when Nancy Walkley was introduced into the mix, she recognized that this was a house of cards that Andrew Kissel built, and she wasn't going to let him get away with it, even if it meant a big commission for her. I do want to thank Facebook friend Lindsay Lopez for helping me better understand this matter a little bit better. While Nancy Walkley was busy sleuthing around Andrew Kissel's shady real estate dealings, Andrew was basically living his best life. By mid-spring of 2005, he had no idea that he'd been figured out. Well, he decided that since he'd been so busy swindling banks left and right, that he would treat himself to a little getaway to Florida. A friend of his from back when they were in school brought up the idea and was like, hey, let's go down to South Beach. Let's check out some possible real estate investments. And oh yeah, Andrew also wanted a new toy, a yacht. But Andrew's wife wasn't the one who went with him. Instead, he took a woman named Allison Statler. She also used to work with him. She was in advertising and PR sort of stuff. As soon as they landed in Florida, they rented out a multi-million dollar yacht. And with a bunch of buddies and a bevy of beautiful women, Andrew threw the party of a lifetime as they sailed around off the coast of Florida. When they were on dry land, they dined and entertained at the most exclusive establishments in and around Miami, particularly South Beach. But Andrew's yacht party came to a screeching halt when his wife called his cell phone and his female companion answered it. Haley Kessel was pissed. She had a few choice words for Andrew's companion. She had some even more choice words for him. And when he got off the phone, he immediately announced to his guests that they needed to get off the yacht. Party was over. And within one month of that, Andrew Kissel found himself in need of a really, really good criminal attorney. And that attorney would be a guy named Philip Russell. As soon as Andrew retained him, Russell was like, look, you need to go and turn yourself in. Because you're either going to do it on your own terms or they're going to come on and get you. 
It would just be a better look for him if he just bit the bullet and did it. This was about a month after Andrew's weekend in Florida. And just as Andrew was getting this advice, Nancy Walkley went ahead and contacted the FBI with the fraud that she had uncovered being perpetrated by Andrew. Meanwhile, Andrew's business partner, David Periger, I think that's how it's pronounced, he was getting bombarded with calls at their offices left and right from various lenders and whatnot about business dealings that he had no idea Andrew was involved in. At least, that's what he says. When David finally had a chance to get Andrew on the phone, Andrew not only screamed at him for having the audacity to question his business dealings, Andrew also proceeded to issue a death threat against David's life. David had been dealing with Andrew's shenanigans ever since the whole debacle with the apartment co-op happened where he was skimming money as the treasurer. Why didn't David walk away from Andrew the first time that he was caught with his hands in the cookie jar? Nobody really knows, but the speculation is, is that it had everything to do about the money. It was enough for David to turn a blind eye as long as Andrew kept the money rolling in. He didn't care how Andrew was making all of it happen. He just wanted to be there while Andrew was making it happen. But those who had dealings with Andrew and David could see that the two could barely get along. They constantly butted heads and Andrew was incapable of trusting anybody, including David. That makes sense considering Andrew was the one with all the underhanded business dealings. Why would he trust anyone when he was the biggest fraudster of them all, am I right? So when it came time for Andrew's attorney to make the arrangements for him to turn himself in to federal investigators, they were told to go to the offices of the assistant U.S. attorney, Kathy Siebel, in New York, which they did. Andrew discussed with investigators some of the issues that had been raised about his investments. The feds launched their investigation on July 17, 2005. A warrant for Andrew's arrest was issued, and he was taken into custody shortly thereafter. The next day, his wife Haley and his attorney bailed him out. And if Andrew skipped bail, Haley would get in trouble too because she was taking responsibility for him. The day after that, Andrew showed up in federal court for arraignment. He was ordered to house arrest. He was fitted with an ankle monitoring device. In all, Andrew was being accused of stealing around $25 million from a variety of financial institutions. Eventually, he would officially be charged with stealing a little under $7 million. At the time, Andrew was getting slapped with lawsuits left and right, and that would include Haley Kissel who slapped him with divorce papers. While all of this was going on, Andrew's attorney was doing everything that he could to gather up Andrew's assets in order to pay off some of the people and companies that Andrew had swindled, as well as his own compensation as Andrew's attorney representing him. He was doing this because he knew he wasn't going to be able to get Andrew off the hook. He was just trying to make the outcome for Andrew as favorable as possible, particularly when it came to sentencing He already told Andrew, we're going to plead guilty. It is what it is, and the facts are the facts. The paper trail is undeniable. So let's go for getting the most lenient sentence possible. But there was something about Andrew's way of doing things that was kind of peculiar to his attorney. For all intents and purposes, he felt like Andrew was agreeable and cooperative with the plans that he had laid out in navigating through the case, but he never felt like Andrew was ever truly cooperative. He continued to do things the way that he wanted to do them, but when they were in each other's presence, he acted like he was going along with what his attorney was suggesting. At times, his attorney wasn't even sure if he could trust Andrew because he knew often that Andrew was lying to him. The one implicit instruction Andrew had given him, he wanted his father, William Kissel, kept completely out of their business. Don't talk to him. Don't call him. Don't email him. Andrew didn't want his dad anywhere near him or his attorney. Haley had done everything she could to put as much space between herself and her soon-to-be ex-husband also, in light of the serious charges that he was facing. It is generally believed that Haley did not have any knowledge of what Andrew was doing. 
When it came to Andrew stealing money from the co-op apartment, well, that never really went away either. Even though they didn't want to pursue criminal charges, that is the board of directors of the co-op, it really wasn't up to them. So two months after he was indicted for the real estate fraud, in September of 2005, Andrew was indicted on charges of crimes related to the money he was stealing as treasurer. Andrew's attorney on that case felt it was a political move because the newly elected DA in Manhattan had made a big deal about prosecuting guys like Andrew. These big money guys that like to be flashy and they just take and take and take and act like they're above the law or something. Andrew was exactly the kind of guy that the new district attorney could use to make an example of. Andrew's attorney went to the media about the arrest. And this is more than two years after the fact, mind you, and also made the claim that the money had all been paid back. So what is the point of this? But one of the biggest points made in all of this was if they had done what they should have done two years earlier and prosecuted Andrew in the co-op apartment case, then none of this other stuff would have ever happened. But because they let Andrew off without any criminal charges, he just went ahead and continued stealing and stealing and stealing until finally someone noticed that someone was Nancy Walkley. It didn't matter if Andrew had paid back all the money he took as treasurer. It doesn't mean that he gets a pass. It also came to light that Andrew Kissel victimized everybody that he could. And this included his own wife, her dad, his father, his dead brother, and just about every single friend that Andrew had that was interested in investing their money. He duped anyone and everyone around him. At a court hearing on October 6, 2005, a gloomy and crestfallen Andrew Kissel appeared before a judge. He still had on the federal ankle monitor, but now he needed to get bonded on the state charges, which was set at $1 million, which he paid, but the judge tacked on an extra $10,000 that he was required to pay in order to get bonded out, and he needed to turn over his passport. When all the charges were laid out, Andrew Kissel was looking at being locked up for as many as 25 years. Okay, I know that I said on Facebook earlier today that I was going to try and squeeze all of this into one final part, but it was getting too long. And I really owe you an episode very soon. It's been more than a week. So I'll go ahead and pause here. I'll record I'll edit this, I'll send it out there for you, and we will wrap this up with the finale in the next few days, and then we will be done with this. So I appreciate your patience, and I will have the sixth and final installment of this series ready for you very soon. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.